You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good evening. This is John Corr and the Reverend C.L. Mitchell coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. This is the Living Truth Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we are uh, two friends that love to get together and, and talk about the Word of God. And we've been going through a series in the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, and we're right in the middle of Jonah chapter 2, where Jonah is sinking down into the belly of the fish, or in the belly of the fish, sinking down to the depths of the sea. And just to get started, or before we get started, I want to say hi to my friend, Reverend. How are you doing? I am well. Doing well. You have your coffee? We have your coffee or hot chocolate? If we can can get um, the weather to calm down a bit. Yeah, it's been too what? Too warm, I think. It's been too season. warm. It's in the 80s here. Yes, I, I think that um, we need a cold front. We do need a cold front. Now, in Arizona, in especially where we live, we embrace those days. I'm looking forward for, to wearing my sweater, you know, the sweater weather, the long sleeve shirts. Come on, bring it on, you know. You know, which um, reminds me, John, we want to wish all of our listeners uh, happy holidays. We're coming up on that season. It is. It, here in the States, it's going to be Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks, which is a, a celebration or thankfulness to, to the Lord yes. for our country and for blessings. You get, and then, of course, Christmas. And, and then Christmas. I also want to remind people that we've just celebrated 500 plus in Reformational history. Ha- yeah. Happy Reformation yes. Day a couple well, last week, was well, it? Yeah, yes, a week ago. October 31st. Yeah. Right, um, and uh, so it, it's a wonderful season and a wonderful time. It is, and wherever you are, whatever part of the world you're in, may the Lord bless you and be with you and your family and keep you as you reflect uh, on what we have ultimately received in the person of Christ. You know, we're gonna have to do a, a Christmas holiday recording up soon. Yes, yes. Um, I, I think the theme will be fa la la la. <laughs> La 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 la. No, something of that. Now nature. you have you have pumpkin spice coffee with you. Yes. At that point, we'll have either that or eggnog coffee or something. You know, we'll have oh, hot some, chocolate, one hundred eighty degrees, oh, man. with a pump of mint with uh, whipped cream on the top, sprinkled yes. cinnamon. You're hi- not that I'm specific. You're hiding. You're hiding. It's those those baristas <laughs> at Starbucks. They cringe when they see you walk in the door. <laughs> oh no, not him. <laughs> anyway, well, we love to have fun and we enjoy talking about God and the Scripture and. And um, just talking about life and the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles or you'd like to listen along and follow along, we are in Jonah chapter 2. And I'm going to read the, the chapter again before we get started. Um, actually, I'm going to start in verse 17 of chapter 1, because that's really where the scene begins. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the depth, or into the deep rather, into the heart of the seas. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. 
Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up from up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will, re- I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Now, in our last discussion, we are just getting started into this prayer, into this this psalm and prayer where Jonah is is really, in one sense, he is he's on his way down to the lowest parts of the earth, to the, to the sort of the threshold of of the underworld. He's about to cross over. The scene describes him as going down, of being of being surrounded, of course, by the water, but also sort of this being prepared for burial almost. Is he dead? Is he is he gonna die? And from that point he he of course gets to the very edge or near the edge, the point of perhaps almost no return. And then it says, I have been expelled from your sight, nevertheless I will look toward your temple. And so we're sort of just starting to discuss the nature of Jonah's prayer, perhaps the the cry where Jonah um began to, of course, now think differently. Now he's finally praying. In fact, it says in in verse 1 that he prayed, which is the technical term for prayer. It's the first time that's being used by Jonah is here in chapter chapter 2, and he is now at at the point of of death, the point of the lowest deeps. He can't get any lower and now it's remained to be seen as what's going to happen with Jonah? And is he gone too far? Is God going to hear his prayer? Has he reached the point where God can't hear his prayer? And so we, we sort of were wrestling with that, and they're wrestling with the kind of prayer that he's praying. And so let's get into that. I think there is a scenic teasing out of a term that we found in chapter 1 in the Hebrew text, right? And that is the term yarad. Yes. Um, this term is not incidentally and casually You can employed. define it for those who don't know what Yerod is. Uh, it is to go down. Right. And I think it's not casually or incidentally employed in this text. The author is using it quite intentionally or deliberately in order to show the downward progression of the prophet. And so with this uh, center of this uh, first chiastic structure, this first um, um, aspect of this prayer, um, we're going to see this ultimate going down, this ultimate depiction of being expelled or banished, he believes at this point, from the presence of the Lord. Because he doesn't know, at this point, he's in a fish, he's praying, but he doesn't know, I mean, perhaps he's thinking, oh, this is my, this is the end. Maybe he's emo because we don't we don't know what he's thinking now because he looks to God he says I look to look to your holy temple of course you know in retrospect we know what's going to happen but as he's going down the fish has him 
he doesn't realize what the end, what the next. It's almost as if you know, you know, as this if God allows him to see what could happen, um, and allows him to experience, you know, the the difficulties of of his rebellion. And sort of, we know there's a hint at that there's going to change here because of the we we talked about this last time the the change of the the male form of fish to the female form of fish the idea of of now it's not just him being in the stomach eaten by this fish now he's in the womb of this fish but as he's experiencing this he doesn't realize I don't think just yet what God will do because God in His mercy or God in His mercy could save him but also God could say okay. I'll let you go, you know? So I don't think he's quite, it's sort of at that, almost that threshold where he is, he's finally crying out to God. Yes. I, I want to, I want to rehearse a phrase that I coined whilst we... Did you tweet that that phrase? No, Did you? No. <laughs> you got to start making no. memes and stuff, you know? Come on, you got a hip... They don't write with quill and parchment anymore, brother. Come on, you got to get with the times, you know? So what did you what did you coin? You remember in in some of our discussions um, years ago on the radio, I argued that uh, we do not want to make the person or the character a theological cadaver, right? That ceases to bleed. I don't want to go forward on the character yet because I think that's at the point at which we uh, cease to allow him to bleed. I want to breathe the terror with the prophet at this point. Right, exactly. He has no clue as to whether or not God is going to rescue him. Right. He, he has none. And so I want to inhale and exhale the same sort of desperation and terror that I believe that the prophet is in the midst of now. Let me just, let me just for application point, because I'm always thinking, you know, I mean, Jonah's cool and everything, but I live in 2019. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem that almost every trial... And circumstance of difficulty that you face, there isn't that. There's never really knowing how long that's going to go. Like you, you don't know how low and how long that journey is going to be. I mean, God might have intention, His whole mind of what He's going to do, but we He allows us to experience in that sense the 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 pain of the the waiting and the the prayers and the agony of hoping and the you know the the, the um, the sort of purifying of our faith of, you know, experiencing, you know, like, you know, if God constantly would rescue us from every single trial and trouble and difficulties, I mean, our faith would be so shallow, but the fact that he allows us and doesn't tell us when the chapter is going to end and close and move to the next phase, you know, you're, it's almost as if, and you know, Jonah here is in a state of rebellion, but let's say the the person that's facing a, a difficult place in their life, you don't know, I don't know, how long that's gonna, how God, how long God has scripted that to be, you know, and it's that place of still waiting and trusting on the Lord and still crying out to Him for Him to end the chapter, so to speak, you know, or for Him to to bring us through that, and I think what we want to do here with Jonah is allow that to play out, not intercept him too soon, and not to rescue him too soon in this sense, but let what God has to do in his life be accomplished in the same with 
maybe not in the sense of rebellion or being in that place because of rebellion, but maybe because of God's will of wanting to do something, that God will allow things to go through their time until the point where he's accomplished what he wants to accomplish, you know? And I'm just wondering, there's because that on a practical sense, I may be like Jonah. Maybe I'm not literally in a fish, and maybe I'm not in rebellion. But man, maybe I'm going through something that I am crying out to God, and I don't know, I don't see any way out of this, and it doesn't look good. And I got to hope and believe that God has something good and redemptive and 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 something of 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 redeeming in what he wants to do you know i've got to have that hope you know well it begs the question john how does god attend to us amidst our trials right wherein is his presence Uh, according to scripture um, he is with us if we were to look at the transitional testaments particularly matthew in a different context he never leaves us or forsakes us And of course, John would argue that the permanency of the Holy Spirit's dwelling with us is that he is in us, never to leave us. Right. But here's the thing, that God can walk with us in a sort of controlled crisis, wherein while he is with us, he can walk in a manner with us where his presence is not immediately detectable. Right. He can walk with us in a manner where somehow he he pauses our capacity to reach out and grasp the familiarity of his constancy that right. we've known in his intimacy. Right. It it harkens back to the Job incident. Right. 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 I I looked to the left and to the right. I looked before me and behind me. I can find him. Now, Psalm 139, are we lost to him? Right. No, no, we are always before him, wherever we go. And I think the extremes are presented in the text to argue holistically that there is no place where we are that we are not before God. However, it can feel that way. Yeah. It can feel that way. I think he's feeling that now. Yeah. And I think as he's feeling that, I want to feel that with him because one might think that the depth of Sheol or the point of the grave is eh, it's not that bad because you could Christianize the text right. now. Right. And if you Christianize the text, then, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right. But, but I don't want to do that. No. Because I want to see this from his vantage point, a vantage point that in the First Testament does not have a progressive revelatory development of what the afterlife looks like. And wherein the Psalter and others say things like this, how will the grave praise you? Yeah. If, if I lose my life, now it looked like earlier he was desperate to get there. Right. But now God's but now... got him thinking. And as he's thinking, he's in this place where, Lord, if I go here... I'm cut off. Where is your hand? Where is your presence? Where is your salvation? Where is your praise? Where is your reputation in the land of the dead? It, it, you know, it's, it reminds me of two things. It reminds me of, of Jesus where he goes and his friend Lazarus has been dead. And he goes to, the, to Lazarus's tomb. He already 
he already tells, hey, we're going to come and wake, wake, wake up uh, Lazarus. He's, he's sleeping or he's dead. But he gets to the grave and he, and he weeps. Now, of course, you know, you can argue, you know, he's weeping over the sin of the world or whatever. I think part of his weeping is the fact that his friend's dead, you know, and he's, yes, he still absolutely. experiences real human emotions and real, he still walks through that and he doesn't cheapen it and say, well, why should I cry? My, I'm going to raise my, he still walks that, you know, and there is something to be said with experiencing, it's okay, you know, to experience those real human emotions of, even though you know God's going to do something, it, it, you, you, Jesus lives that, you know, and he, and he, and, or if, it, if it's the, the, the friends of Job who, before they talk, are really wise, but when that's, once they open their mouth and forget the, the wisdom, but he's going through this and, and you can't give him any trite advice, you know, it just sounds shallow, you know, um, sometimes it's okay to, you know, to weep with those who weep, you know, to mourn with those who mourn, you know, to walk and just be that friend with that somebody that, that has to go through that. And here's Jonah who is, who's going through it, so to speak. And, and the Lord's allowing him that he doesn't know what the future holds. He doesn't know how long this ride's going to be. He doesn't know whether God's going to answer his prayer on this side of heaven or that side of heaven. He does pray to God. He does remember his God which is a good thing. Um, but the Lord lets him, lets that play out. And he says, and he says in, uh, he says the, that the water encompassed me to the point of death. It's that, it's that scene where he is grasping for his last breath of air, so to speak, you know, and the, the waters, you know, he's, he's, he's at the utter threshold of death and up to this point, things are still going down, and 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 you're experiencing this this real journey with him, and it's not cheapened, it's not shortcutted. And I think, you know, where he realizes with this what this could be, and in fact, it says that he he says the verse five, the great deep engulfed me, and the weeds were wrapped around my head, and. It's almost that things are closing in on him too, you know. He's going down, down, down. The, the everything, you know, the air's probably running out, and the water's encompassing him, and the weeds are about his head. It's 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 shrinking upon him. The whole everything is collapsing on him, so to speak, you know. And he's getting trapped and trapped and trapped and trapped. And and now what, you know? Yeah, as he's going toward his negative progression. I want you to hear, I'm going to cut in, in a segment of verse two. I do. I'm, I'm in verse five, bro. You're in verse two. <laughs> I'll join kidding. you there. <laughs> okay. I'll wait for you here. <laughs> I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Yes. You heard my voice. That sounds bad. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. That sounds worse. Yeah. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. That sounds progressively worse. But it is nothing in comparison to, and indeed another reason why I'd argue for the center of the first chiastic structure being in verse 4. Yeah, I agree. Is because at this point, he says, 
So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. That's where the true terror yeah. kicks in. But, now, I, I think he's afraid well, before that. When he gets to this place where his thinking is expelled from the presence of God, yeah. th that's, that's the true terror. Right. Th that's, that's the true fright. And I don't think he wants to be there. And so, and so you suddenly see this pivot that, of course, was summated in verse 2. I called out of my distress. I think that's the pivot point of his distress where he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. God, you are my only hope and rescue from the desperate, dismal darkness of being expelled from your presence. Well, here's what's here's what's significant, and I, I like your progression there and what you what you were pointing out. It's at that point where he has gone, like you said, he's gone from into the ocean, into the deep, into the heart of the seas, down, down, down. Now it's not just geographically going down. Now it's sort of spiritually where he says. I have been expelled from your sight in a sense of I'm that place where I am cut off. What's yeah. interesting is that's that's the point where his prayer comes or changes, right? It's the dual employment of Yarad. Right. He's not just geographically going down. He's he's spiritually going down. Let me just let me just I just wanna something's hit me on and that idea because it's it's almost as if, like, when when somebody wants to walk away from the Lord or or go into a sin or rebel, if they play that out in their mind, the downward journey of what could happen. It's the it's the prodigal son who has to come to that place where he has gone from. A wealthy kid who has a loving home, loving dad, to having some friends who are with him while he's partying, to being out of money, to working in the pig farm, to being so hungry. To abject poverty. To a place where he is... And ceremonial uncleanness where he's unclean and hungry, but he's at the point where had he had played that in his mind, had he knew where that journey would take him to the point of, I'm cut off from your sight. But John, I guess... Would, would, would that have... My point is, is maybe God has to take some of us to that place for us to realize the goodness of God that we've experience all up to that point or the provision of God or the kindness of God for us to realize and to appreciate what he's blessed us with, some of us God has to allow to go through that. And some of us can realize, I don't want to get to that place because I realize what, you know, does that make sense? Because does sin ever play out in your mind like it plays out in your life? No. And that's the thing is, that's the whole point is here Jonah starts on his journey thinking he's going to get away with it. But even though when he knows that the storm is from God, I mean, he's, he tells the sailors, well, 
it's yeah, the lot is cast on me. Yeah, I'm the reason because I'm a prophet of, I'm, I'm you know prophet of God, and I'm the reason for the storm. But it still doesn't click on him, you know. Yeah. It, it, it the reality doesn't click that you know it affects him personally up until this point. And I'm, my my point is is that that point where God has to bring you to where the realization is, you know, your your way, your your will self person doesn't have a good conclusion it doesn't it doesn't play out the way you think or hope in fact you're waiting for it to change you're hoping it to go a different direction but you know deep down it's not going to play out the way you want to play out and god will bring you there you know and i just think there's that that turning point where turning point where the young son in luke 15 says how many of my masters my my dad's servants eat better than me he he comes to his senses, you know. Yes. Jonah is, he's at that point where he has to come to his senses, and however far, far God has to bring. I just and you're right. Sin doesn't always. You don't always think wisely when you're going and doing your own rebellion, but you try all the hard to make it work. You know, you try to make it work. You know, you try that to make that storm go away, but God in His mercy, He allows it to still happen. He does. He argues in this text that though apparently in fellowship, in his thinking, dismissed from the sight of God, it literally, in the, in the Masoretic text, it's before your eyes. Right. Right. Before the face. Before the face of God, yeah. Uh, b- b- before the face or the panim. Panim, The, pre- the presence. Yeah of God, right? This depiction of, of God's presence. Notice, and, and here's why I point out that it's expelling from his panim, his face, not eyes, but his face. Notice what he says. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now stop yeah. with the pivot of that conjunction yeah. because the temple was representative of the presence, the presence of, of God. Yeah. And so the prophet argues that the only relief from this apparent lack of fellowship and connectivity is God's presence, the very thing he believes he was banished or expelled from. You know, what's interesting is in that right where you're at in verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. If if I remember correctly, that word that look again, it's that same word that's used in Exodus, where if the people got bitten by a snake or a serpent, mm. they were to look at this this bronze snake that Moses this big pole with a bronze snake, and if somebody got bit by this by a serpent, they could look to that hole that Moses made and be healed. Yes. It's the same word. Yeah. And you would live. It's not just looking as, you know, to appreciate the the beauty of the temple, though it was probably beautiful, but a looking for a healing, salvation, help uh, type of idea, you know, turning again to look to God for help. You know, it, it, it argues that the temple and all of its illustriousness had a, a very practical theological purpose. Right. And that was, again, 
it was representative of the face or the presence of God in the midst of the people. Yeah. And here the prophet literally issues forth his heart toward the face or the presence of God once again, realizing that therein lies his only help. Um, I think, I think therein is a very weighty instruction that cannot be ignored. That for us, we have this tendency to look to other things first, right. foremost, or primarily as that which will restore us or give to us once again good fortune. Here the prophet is in such desperate circumstances that he skips all the side steps. He goes directly to that which is alone, yeah. his hope, namely the presence of God. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, and just this is just, you know, we're, it's, we're not, this is in chapter three where he finally gets to the Ninevites, but I'm wondering if his experience, I mean, how much of it is meant to prepare him for, I mean, it's, you would think that he would have compassion on the people, now he's a prophet that's going to share this message of God's salvation, to God, you know, repent. Boy, if you knew what I just got through on my way here, this lab session I went through, I was going the wrong way, and then I looked to God, and he saved me. Now he has this message to the Ninevites. I'm wondering, we, we would hope that would that would have a play on Jonah's heart, you know, to be sensitive to realizing, wow, I was in desperate, I'm the prophet of God, and still I was at the point where I needed to look to God myself. You wonder, is his heart been changed by this whole experience? And... Well, we'll see because in this prayer, there's there's some hints that yes, and there's hints that mm, he's the same guy, you know. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I I was just looking at my Masoretic text, John, and, and you I have your Masoretic. To, what you, <laughs> and, and again, who the carries word, their Masoretic text around? You know? <laughs> the word is ayin. It, it 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 expelled from your sight. The, the the sense is his face or his presence or his attention. Right. As it were. Um, um, right. But in, in verse number five, he says, uh, this is where he begins uh, the, the new... Um, uh, He's trapped in verse five. <laughs> picture, he says, water encompassed me. Now, now again... In this verse, he's revisiting now earlier themes in this prayer. Right. This this coverage that he is under, this burial that he's trapped in. Water encompassed me to the point of death. And 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 his sense is that. It's gripped my soul now. He can feel death right. encroaching upon him. Yeah. And the great deep engulfed me. And then weeds were wrapped around my head. Now, now the head napkin was an important part of Jewish ritual. It was part of the burial, burial process. Yeah. Right? You'd have, yeah. This is the closure. Yeah. Um, this is the, the finality in his thinking, it's over. Right. It's done. The curtain has almost hit the bottom of the stage. Yeah. 
for him. And so what you see is this sad thing. Remember, what you're supposed to do in this narrative is now look at the sad position of this man who was spoken of earlier in Scripture as a successful prophet. Right. Who then became obstinate and ran from God. And now it would be very sad. It would be as though his life were coming to an end. Yep. And you're walking by getting ready to close in our modern day the casket and you yep. go... This didn't have to end this way. You just you just bringing up an idea of what could have been. Imagine you're you're at the funeral. You're you're reading the papers. You're reading the obituary, and you're like, "This didn't have to go this way. This this prophet had great potential, and God's hand was on him, and he ends this way. He's it doesn't have to. Why did it have to go this way, Lord?" Why, of all people, did this have to go? And you're right, the, the curtain's just, just about to finish dropping down. It seems that all hope has been lost. And just at that point... My hand's still dropping down. <laughs> right. Just at that point, verse 6, I descended to the roots of the, of the mountains. Now, this this imagery, again, beckons back to this picture where the earth hangs on pillars yeah he's now been at the bottom of the sea where this river that crosses into the netherland and this in this imagery is depicted and so listen to this imagery parallel to the roots of the mountains are the earth with its bars and notice he uses this language of finality they're around me forever CL, in our, what we would say in our vernacular, he has literally hit rock bottom. He has gone, he can't go any further down. His, his life, his, it's reached no further, no, no. And now he's at the point of what's going to happen next. And that's where... I want to suggest that language and grammar in Scripture is not only critical, it's, it's not the stuff of nerds, it's the stuff of hope. Yeah. Listen to grammar, but God being rich in mercy. Right. Do you see how it's... Conjunctions. You listen to that. Yeah. And... And suddenly the heart that is weighted with infinite pressure yeah. is suddenly lightened as though it were a cloud floating into the very face of God. You know, you know what it is? It's the picture, the image that comes to my mind is the doctors have applied the paddles to the heart. They have tried to resuscitate flatline. They've tried numerous times. They've worked it flatline. They've put the paddles away. They're getting ready to close up, close up the curtain. And God brings life into something that was apparently dead. Something that even beyond human comprehension or ability, God breeds life into. This Jonah should be dead. From all Absolutely. human purposes, he's. Um, he should be dead. He can't get any lower. He's physically should be dead. He's he's at the place where 
this is it, you know? And from all purposes, if you are a bystander watching this, he's wrapped in grave clothes, he's in his coffin already, he's not coming up, there's no sign of life. This is it. And yet, he says, but, 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 but. It serves (laughs) as an adversative conjunction in contrast to the darkness of my circumstance Mm. that for all practical purposes is hopeless. Yes. So so, so, so just pause here. Just hold on. (laughs) Can God bring something, bring hope where there's no hope? Can he bring life where there is no life? I mean, you've, we've played it out where Abraham realizes that his son is as good as dead, right? Um, before he, you know, he, he, he understands that, that this is it. Where, but you have brought me my life up from the pit, the turning point. What's the difference here? But you have brought my life what appears hopeless to you and I is not hopeless to God. There's always the but you, but God brought me up. I think this is the turning point, the, the Janus, the pivot point, right? even between the two chiastic structures. Yes. And I think it's the same sort of turning point that that prefigures in an anticipatory way the gospel right i I don't want to falsely plant the gospel here no but the gospel but i do want to say that the elements of the good news right are found in such conjunctive phrases where only god right can heroically rescue and salvage that which is beyond apparent salvation. And and he says, but you have brought up my life from the pit. Remember, the pit is being seen here in all of the language, depth of Sheol, into the deep, into the heart of the seas, this engulfing current. He argues that from the deepest possible place on the cusp and at the bars and in the face of forever, the only rescuing hand that can reach that far is God's. Let me just add a little little note here where it says but you have brought my life up from the pit. My understanding is the word shahat. The pit, the word pit comes from a word or is derived from a word, a verb meaning to ruin, to destroy, to annihilate. It's the place of corruption. The place where the corpse is, is decomposing and it's going back to dust. This isn't just a freshly dead body. This is one that's now going back to the dust, and even at that point, but you, God, you know, like we're, it's not resembling a 
a person anymore. It's not resembling something that was alive once. It's now resembling something that is scattered. I mean, think about the the power and grace of God, where he cannot just make something that was dead alive, but something that was decomposed, annihilated, and scattered to come back into life again. But again, is this not a dualistic picture of the the state of this prophet's soul before God and potentially where his body would be lost to all human eyes and forgotten. And, and by the way, who of his kinsmen would even know where his remains lie? It's, it's, it's the ultimate dishonor. Where is his burial place? It's the, I'm just going jesus goes to raise lazarus martha says but lord he's gonna stink because he's been dead for four days he's already decomposing he's already he's lost some of his molecules and atoms and his flesh he's he's gone past then yeah cellular death has kicked in and cellular decomposition has kicked in and what you would find there, God, you wouldn't like. And, and, and as soon as you open that tomb, that which is the voice of decomposition is going to speak to your nostrils. And yet Jesus says, open it anyway. Yeah. Do you know that God would never challenge you to open something if he could not demand of death life? Amen. It's extraordinary. You know what? What hits me here is as we're we're seeing the the utter powerlessness of Jonah, the other place of absolute dependence that Jonah is going to be on God. Right? You can't describe, and he's literally dying, perhaps getting ready to be annihilated, whatever. You brought me up from the, you brought, you have brought my life up from the pit, oh Lord, my God. But there's something that happens in the next statement, because let me just say something here. Up to this point, it is everything, the realization is it's all the mercy and grace of God. It's all him and you and I being that unless God steps in, I am not... You and I don't get to put our name on the credits at the end of the movie, right? It's all a God. But watch this. He says, while I was fainting away, I remember the Lord. Now, there's, there's something that doesn't sound... <laughs> but, but, but pause, but pause. It doesn't sound good there. Yeah. Before I get there, because okay. I, I do want to touch that. But before I get there, what sort of deity rescue someone for this from this sort of circumstance what sort of deity could the names of god must not be brushed over Mm. as though to be read in casualty first i think it is critical to point out the covenantal name of god yahweh yeah then i think it is important to point out the name of god that is first introduced to us or the title hello of God introduced to us in the Bible that is found in its original context in Genesis 
Right. What does he do but bring something out of? Elohim, yeah. Nothing. And what does he do but bring order out of chaos? Right. And so the two... Wait, maybe it's, you're, what you're describing is in Genesis, Genesis 1, where God creates something out of nothing, where he, create, he puts order out of something that's chaotic, Elohim. What I'm describing is when the text opens up, Bereshith bara Elohim eith hashamayim viha'aretz. Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right. And viha'aretz, tohu vabohu, and the earth was, was formless a, void. in deities, it was uninhabitable. Right. It's Elohim that's putting that back together. And who does this? Elohim. And and so he calls out the covenantal name of God. Yahweh. I think that's phenomenal because it appears he recognizes, I'm not lost to you. I have covenant with you. The strength of that name is not Jonah's grip on it, but it's the name, the person's disposition that is so fidelitous that God has not forgotten his grip upon Jonah or even the nation of Israel. So what you're saying is the fact that he's using Yahweh, O Lord, it says in our scripture, he's using, he's calling up, he's using the covenantal name Yahweh to describe Yahweh as being faithful to that covenant, where Jonah in one sense, and you and I too, often fail in being faithful to a covenant, but God is always faithful to his covenant. If he's not a covenantally faithful God, why look to his temple? Right. Because is this not, again, in allusion, what Solomon prayed when he dedicated it? Right. And and so I think he's able to hearken back to his name for the name in Hebrew and in the ancient Near Eastern culture argued for a disposition of character. Right. And what character is brought up by this name? It's faithfulness. And and, and who cares for a faithful God who's not powerful enough to do that right. which he promises? Right. So, yeah, so, so the mention of these, these two terms... Together. He, he's reaching for his covenant God, but he's reaching for his covenant God who is able... Listen to the language of Ephesians to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that he can ask or think. And and, and so his his mentioning here recommends to us when we're at this low spot, for the believer, the attachment is not lost. The, the connection is not lost. It may be you, lost upon us. Right. We, we may not... We may forget God, but he'll not forget us. Yeah, that, that's why, John, that makes me so uncomfortable when he comes along in the next verse. Yeah, let me, maybe it's before this real fast, just by way of encouragement, it gives me hope where it says, where Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hmm. Right? I'm with you always. Um... We are always on the forefront of the Lord's mind. Yes. The thoughts I have towards you, right? Outnumber the sands of the sea. Um, I, I, I can't deny you, basically, he says. I can't forget about you. In fact, Jesus has permanently has the marks of the, of the crucifixion permanently on him right now. 
on his yes. hands and his feet. Constant rem- He can't forget about it. His faithfulness is still going strong. We may forget. He never forgets. That that's that that part right there, you can just you can just camp out and and meditate on that and 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 ponder upon that. That when we are faithless, he is faithful. Mm. When we're forgetful, he doesn't forget. That tells me that the whole journey of you and I going through the Christian life is it's God bringing us along because God, who's the covenant-keeping God, who's the faithful God, who's the good God, who's the powerful God, he's the one that's that's leading us and driving us along because we you and I are like sheep. We, you and I and I are, are, are frail, but praise God, no matter where or what, his faithfulness remains. It's that next part in Jonah's... The next thing that that <laughs> it, it makes me it tastes like sour milk. <laughs> it, it makes me if you don't like sour easy, right? Because while what, I was what the yeah. what the strong adversative conjunction in verse six gives me, but he seems to take away. He diminishes it in verse seven, and and so yeah. he says, and it's really odd because he says, while I was fainting away, I remembered. Now, okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate. The eternal one. Okay. Okay. I understand, and I, I'm with you on the, the sticks out. While I fainted the way, I remember the Lord. No, actually, he remembered you is what it should read. Every other case where this structure is used, this idea is used, it's you, we talked about this last time, Noah and the flood, the key verse in that whole structure, the middle verse actually in that chiasm is, and the Lord remembered Noah. In other places it's used like that, the idea of... So I'm I'm with you on that, and it sticks out. And I think, I think, if I I were Jonah, I would say, Jonah, perhaps you should have used that verse (laughs) earlier rather than later, because coming right where it comes where we've just talked about the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the God, God coming in at, at the point where you have reached annihilation and death, everything else, to say then you remembered God, I think it's ill-placed. So, so, so let, me, let me consider this term zakar. Right, to remember. Um, first of all, um, the term zakar is is more pointed than our English translation to recall. Uh, that's that's a little frail. Uh, in right. ancient Near Eastern Israel, when this term was used within the Hebrew text, particularly in the Book of Deuteronomy, right? Um, yeah, yeah. The, the term is not employed um, to argue that a certain state of amnesia has has crept up on the individual so that they have forgotten right Deuteronomy but eight. but biblical forgetting is to to not act toward or not not join oneself to in adherence right right um and so when the biblical text speaks of remembering it speaks of 
acting uh, or, or adhering to so as to uh, uh, hearken or obey. It, it has, a, it has a, a, a connection with Shema's meaning, right? Now, with that being said, I love Dr. Bruce Walkie's um, articulation of this concept because he then goes forward into English and argues for the structure of and the combination of words whereby the English term remember is built. And he argues that it is literally in its building closer to the term Zakar's biblical meaning. This is what he says, that the biblical meaning of zakar is really remembering or rejointing. Right. So that he's arguing for a recommitment to a person's covenant with God. Right. And so there's a, there's a point at which I think it could be allowed in, in, a, in a kind way that that Jonah is arguing for a rejointing, right. a literal reconnection of fellowship on his part with God. If if I have to give him something positive, that's what I think I have to so, give him okay. here. But I'm not totally satisfied okay, so with that. I I agree with you. I think, and I think if you if you look at like say Deuteronomy eight, it says in verse 18, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the power to make wealth, right? So you go to a land, he's going to give you power and strength to make wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God. There's always this idea of remembering. I think if you look at uh, the book of Judges, where it says that they did they failed because they did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of the, of the, of the enemies. So there is a place where remembering God ought to happen, right? So I'll give Jonah that. I just think the position of his remembering the Lord right after <laughs> this verse on the faithfulness of God and the power of God, I think that's what that's why it sticks out because it's like, wait a second, had you had said have you had, had you said this earlier, right? I, I looked to his temple that I remember the Lord, you know, when I was trying that it doesn't fit. It's like it's true he's remembering the Lord. But his remembering of the Lord is not the difference maker, and I think that's what's why it sticks out because it seems to it seems to insinuate what Jonah's what Jonah's statement is. It's 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 I can't speak English now. It's it implies that the difference was him remembering God, yeah, and not God remembering him. And see, here's why that's a sore thumb to me contextually because now this falls in play with this personal pronoun business that he continues to employ all throughout this poetic prayer he has the the me monster doesn't hear the, 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 <laughs> the verse two i called out um the the verse two in the center i cried for help the verse four, so I said, I have been expelled. Nevertheless, I will look again. Uh, verse six, I descended to the roots. Uh, verse seven, while I was fainting, I remembered, but I, in verse nine, will sacrifice to you uh, that which I have vowed. I will pay my... And, and that's not even counting the me's. Doesn't it sound like... I mean, it's... 
it's thank you lord that i i am not like other people <laughs> i am not like this tax collector here i do this i do that who's the god of that person it's the it's it's me myself and i it's the the self-centeredness of wait a second we're this is what's striking about about Jonah, this is what's striking about it. this is this happens in believers. It happens in people where the that pride comes up that keeps popping up, and you would think of all people in all places who've gone through what he's gone through, you would think they would be utter humility and brokenness and change of heart and what does this guy have to go through for him to have a change of heart? Okay, a few things have to be said here. John, a few things have to be said. First of all, you could look at chapter number one, and in the first section of the reading of it, you can hear the prophet being insulted by um, the wickedness of Nineveh. Yeah. But if chapter one divulges the wickedness of Nineveh, Chapter 1 goes on to exhibit even more. And chapter 2 and chapter 4, the wickedness of the prophet. Well, you know, you do realize Jonah is not about Ninevites. It's about Jonah. <laughs> and, and I think wickedness can be appropriately defined as the attempt to advantage yourself to the disadvantage of another. Hmm. This guy... You're looking at this and you're saying, so is this all just because he wouldn't preach? Well, there's something rooted in him that, that God is wrestling out of him. And, and this moment of, of going down has divulged and exposed something in the prophet. And as you go throughout the, the chapters, it will only progressively be seen even more clearly that this this prophet has a bit of a self focus that he's wrestling with. You know, I mean, we're almost out of time today, but the the verse that comes to my mind is that in Jeremiah it says, "The heart is more deceitful than all else; it is desperately wicked or sick." Right? We you we you have a Jonah who. He doesn't have a change of heart. What's interesting in chapter three, the Ninevites hear a few words from Jonah, and they have a change of heart. And his heart, it it seems, never quite gets to what you want it to be. Like I said, he's a work in progress. But you would think, after everything this man has seen and gone through, that there would be some sense of I deserve this, or I am grateful for what God is. You know, you would think there's a brokenness. You would hope. Yeah, but you have to see this in the whole picture. In chapter one, the mariners respond. Right. In chapter four, three and four, the Ninevites respond. In chapter three, the fish responds, the worm responds, the plant responds. The prophet, he's a work in progress. It, let me just say something summatively. When I look at this, 
even before we tease this out and unpack this next time, John, let me just cast this out there. This falls out of the structure of the prayer patterns in Scripture where this phraseology is mentioned. Because the hope of the believer or the sinner who seeks rescue from God is not your ability to suddenly act toward God or think toward God or in the language of the translation, remember God. Your life being rescued is the courtesy of God acting toward, thinking toward, or remembering you. Let's not, let's not get that turned around. Let's not sell that short. And I think this, this frankly, I, I would like, John, if I'm honest, I'd like to cast this firmly upon this prophet. I, I'd like to, again, color him in the paint of truth. I'd like to dip my brush deeply in this one because this will be one of those really dark colors that will be emboldened and I will paint it with passion. But then the Lord reminds me, CL, and how will you paint yourself? Will you use such a broad stroke such a color of, of deep, dark truth to paint your own selfishness. What about the times when you forget that it's not you who remembers me, but the reason why your life is not as dark, dismal, disconnected, dire as it could be is because I've remembered you. Now, here's what I want to connect that with really quick. We haven't finished the prayer. And yet remember the summative aspect of this prayer in verse 2. I called out of my distress to the eternal one or to the covenantal one and he answered. You mean even in the midst of this imperfect prayer with this imperfect man, with this selfishness divulged, God answers? Yes. Why? Does it not hearken back to, but you brought up my life from the pit? What kind of God would do that? The only reason why you hear people like me is because you are the covenantal, all-powerful, gracious God who is slow to anger and who is rich in loving kindness and mercy. I'm so grateful that even when the darkness of my heart, the selfishness of my cries do not even deserve to be acknowledged, the rescue of grace yet comes because of the nature and character of my God, despite the nature and character of the one who he rescues. By grace you have been saved and that not of yourselves. Even in the First Testament, it was the gift of God so that no one could boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at 
passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.